are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Are you lying because you sound like you have a, a terrible hay fever? <laughs> I am lying. I have what might be terrible hay fever or might be because I've never had terrible hay fever like this before, a sinus infection. Um, oh. Who can say? Poor thing. <laughs> Suffer. You shouldn't have a sinus I, infection in the summer. It's cruel. It's cruel. I mean, it's cruel to have one ever. They're the, yeah. the dirt worst, but yeah. The, the nice thing is that it clears up when I move. So if I, I can go out for a walk and it like goes away and then I sit, come home and sit down and feel all nice and then just my sinuses just swell up Aww. inside my head and make me want to die. Or maybe you need one of those like slightly frightening treadmill desks that people who do business with a capital B have. Absolutely not. look i have my nice cross-legged chair that's especially for people who sit cross-legged and this is where i shall live out my days i also have that chair and i love it it's just it's just the best yeah we are evangelical about the good chair Um, (laughs) but rather than just talk about chairs we are janina and emma yes and we are together like powerpuff girls we are history and sexy (laughs) That's exactly what we are. We're the Powerpuff Girls of history podcasts. I never watched Powerpuff Girls or engaged in any way with them, and all I know is that they have big eyes. So, so I'm I'm bluffing here with my analogies. <laughs> Powerpuff Girls banged. It's about these okay. tiny girls who are incredibly violent, and their nemesis is a monkey. Okay, called Mojo Jojo. Mojo Jojo. Feel like I would recognise the monkey. But yeah, so we are uh, incredibly violent in the face of historical questions, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. As long as we don't have to move too much. (laughs) (laughs) But today we are answering a question from Jordan Ardoin, who has asked, what is so great about Alexander the Great and why he's so special in the eyes of history? And then as I was answering this, I ended up accidentally answering another question as well. So this is a kind of bonus two for one episode. Mm-hmm. So it's Alexander the Great, but also someone very recently emailed us, Becca Nightingale emailed and said, why are we rightly so quick to condemn modern empire building, but not so quick to condemn older forms of imperialism? So we're also going to talk a bit about why empires of the past are different to empires of today and also why we are kind of more i guess why we are incapable of of condemning them Mm. in popular culture as we are like modern colonial empires yeah yeah it's i'd say it's even further than that i think it's often painted as heroic um, to build an empire in you know 200 bc well we will get there we Um, will and um, and we say often mean always, but um, <laughs> first we're going to talk a bit about who Alexander the Third of Macedon actually is, which is presumably in the ancient world was pronounced Macedon, right? Because there's no Macedon. soft C in no, Greek. There is not. There's a hard C, but it's like guttural and ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, but yeah. as I always say whenever people ask me about pronunciations or stuff, it doesn't really matter because we don't say Caesar right, we don't say Cicero right, we don't say anything right. So yeah. unless you're going to come out saying Cicero and all the rest <laughs> of it, then it just like... And you just can't. You can't say Cicero. It's it sounds not, ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. Yeah. And Kaiser sounds like it's a whole thing now. So yeah. 
It just they're doesn't just, really matter. They're just <laughs> modern pronunciations that are not the same as ancient pronunciations, and that's yeah. okay. That's fine. That's fine. So you should never feel bad about how you pronounce something from the ancient world because we're pronouncing almost everything wrong. And if anyone gets on at you, then send them to me. <laughs> uh, Language yeah. evolves and changes over time and we all just need to be comfortable with it. Yes. I have a whole footnote in the 21 Women book that's coming out that is about that because my editor noted that I had said the hoi polloi mm-hmm. and... Hoi polloi is like in hoi polloi, hoi in Greek is the article, so it's the masses, like in hoi is oh. the so, so people get hoi polloi is like saying ATM machine, yeah, exactly. The, mm. the and I was like, no, because it's not in English, though, is it? And I'm writing in English and I'm not using it in Greek, I'm just using it as an English phrase that derives from Greek. And so, I have a whole footnote about how people who wang on about using ancient <laughs> languages that no one speaks anymore correctly or like get stressed about split infinitives, a thing that does not exist in English, English yeah. can basically go fuck themselves. <laughs> Here at History is Sexy, we say no to linguistic prescriptivism. Exactly, exactly. We are descriptivists all the way. All the way. Yeah. So anyway, back to Alexander. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think that most people think that Alexander is a Greek and most people don't know anything further about him other than the fact that he conquered some people. So I figured it would be good to do a quick overview. And that he wept when he saw there were no more worlds to conquer. Allegedly so, although... (laughs) I suspect he mostly wept because his army were fed up and <laughs> refused to cross any more rivers with him. But yeah. they, they had to cross so many rivers. They really did. Yeah, so Alexander the Great is previously, during his lifetime, is Alexander III of Macedon or Macedonia. He is emphatically not a Greek during his lifetime to the extent that the actual Greeks rebel against him several times and hate his guts. <laughs> he is the son of Philip II of Macedon, who is the first kind of like military king of of Macedonia. He does these massive reforms of the army and is the first person to come out of Macedonia and to want to start conquering the people around him, essentially. Yeah. Well, she does. Yeah. And he conquers Greece. And a lot of what we know about Philip comes from the classical Greeks writing about him because they hated him and thought he was a barbarian, basically. <laughs> Particularly, we have all of these speeches, which are now called the Philippics, by a orator, an Athenian orator called Demosthenes, which I promised my friend Sarah that I would say this because she did her PhD on rhetoric and did a fair whack on Demosthenes mm-hmm. and she hates that everybody thinks that the Philippics are a series of speeches which are attacks on Philip mm-hmm. because Cicero stole the word Philippics and applied them to his character assassination speeches on about Mark Antony. Right. And Cicero ruined it, but they're not. They're actually about how the Greeks are so rubbish because they just rolled over and let a filthy Macedonian (laughs) walk all over them. Um, And they didn't even put up a proper fight like good Greeks should. And it's mostly, if you read them, about how the Greeks are rubbish and barely mentions Philip at all. Uh, (laughs) 
So I promised Sarah that I would tell people this so that more people know that the Philippics are not character assassinations on the man that I will now be calling Big Phil. (laughs) (laughs) He does manage to conquer Greece. He's doing a good job and he is then preparing to invade the Persian Empire. This is the 4th century BCE. He'd like not invented, but like innovated the the phalanx, which I feel yes. like is a term everyone knows, but maybe don't get into. Which is basically a big mass of infantry with shields and spears that all clump together, so that you can't penetrate them. Yeah, and it allows it allows you to spread your forces in a much thinner line, which means that even if you are opposing army is much bigger, you they can't outflank you because you. The phalanx allows you to spread your army as long from side to side as they are because they've got their like infantry protected behind their cavalry and like because they're vulnerable. And they have like spears sticking out the front from the first several rows. So the front of the phalanx is just like a porcupine of spears and you can't get close to them without impaling yourself. So yeah. it's a, a very effective wee tactic. It is, and this is a a classic Greek way of fighting. And yeah, Big Phil brings in all of these kinds of he he brings all of these ideas into the Macedonian army, and and then yeah brings in various other kinds of reforms regarding education and stuff, and then smashes people as he goes, (laughs) and everything is going reasonably well for Big Phil, right up until the point at which he. In 336, he is assassinated by one of his own members of his household, members Mm -hmm. of his party, which will turn out to be something that happens in the Macedonian court. Um, And his 20-year-old son, um, Alexander, ascends to the throne. Which, when Uh, I learned about this in classics when I was at high school, you hear 20-year-old son and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a man, that's an adult grown-up. And now I am 40 and I'm like, this was a child. (laughs) He's a baby. and He's he's a tiny baby. Leading an army since he was 16. So he first, (laughs) well, he takes over running Macedonia when he's 16 years old. He's leading an army outside of Macedonia at 18 years old. So he is a child but he has been very much groomed for leadership. And one of the big things everybody knows about him is that one of his tutors when he was a young adult, like his kind of high school education, was partly provided by Aristotle. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive transcript. It is. Although, notably, for some reason, he gets all of the credit for that. Like, oh, he was taught by Aristotle. What a great thing about Alexander. And you're like, yeah, but he didn't pick him. Like, Big (laughs) Phil chose him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and Aristotle came. Like, I guess that yeah. says a lot about Big Phil that he could like hire as a tutor for his son, Aristotle, literal yeah. Aristotle. So, yeah, I don't know why Alexander gets all of the credit for that one, but he paid attention. And so, one of the interesting things about that is you can read Aristotle. He has like these huge mass of ideas that he's written about, like a massive polymath, and you can kind of get an idea of what he might have been teaching Alexander when Alexander was fourteen and probably quite scary. <laughs> Uh, He ascends to the throne at 20 and immediately takes off on just massive military action wherever he goes. At the time when he takes throne, there are revolts in Greece, which he just crushes almost immediately, just smashes Mm -hmm. them to the ground. He raises Thebes, a very, very, very ancient city of Thebes, to the ground and just 
destroys them. And then I'm just going to do a quick list of, because it's easier to do this. Mm -hmm. It's a 13-year reign he has. And in the first eight years, he besieges and destroys and conquers basically everyone. So 335, (laughs) he destroys Thebes. 334, mm-hmm. this 334 BCE, he invades Persia and has his first battle, which he wins. 333, Battle of Issus in Persia. 332, he besieges both Tyre and Gaza and destroys them both. 331, he enters Egypt, which surrenders to him without a fight because he's so scary. <laughs> 330, he invades Persia to the point that he gets to Persepolis, burns Persepolis, which is the capital of the Persian Empire, which is the biggest empire in the world at the time, burns it to the ground and kills Darius III, the emperor of Persia. 329, he manages to make it to India. <laughs> he has <laughs> He's really cutting a swath across, uh-huh. across the he world. Blasted across Iran, through Afghanistan, all of Central Asia, and is in India. He hits in Hindu Kush in 329. In 328, he's up in northern India and is conquering Sugdinia. 327, he is just kind of meandering around India, basically. Mm-hmm. 326, he hits basically the limit of where he can go because this is when his army revolt against him and refuse to go any further. He gets to the Indus River. They get to the Hydaspus River, which is now the uh, Bay River or something like that. Mm-hmm. And his army is like, no, I'm not, I'm not going any further than this. <laughs> And he has to come back. He then marches through the Gedrosian Desert, comes back and lives in Susa, then moves to Babylon in 323, and then dies. So in 13 years, he conquers pretty much like one of the biggest empires of all time in 13 years. It spans from northern Greece, what is now northern Macedonia, all the way down, like north to south, down to Egypt, so that entire eastern side of the Mediterranean, through Mm -hmm. Syria, Iran, Iraq, and then through big swathes of West Asia into Western and Northern India, and only stops because his army won't stop him. Throughout all of this, he is undefeated. He never loses a battle. There are various battles when he is outnumbered like six to one and he wins them all uh, yeah so at uh, like guagamela he is outnumbered six to one by a the persian army and the reason he invades persia is because the persians have been harassing greece have been conquering everybody for a mm. long time like you have you know the 300 and thermopylae and all of the marathon and all the rest of them yeah and he managed to make himself emperor of Persia. This is where the first time that he gets called the Great because he makes himself the great king of Persia. And he adopts a lot of Persian customs as he goes as well. So he he has a harem and he ha- he like demands all these forms of respect that were common in the Persian Empire, but not in Greece or in Macedonia. Well, yes, there are three times when people fight against him <laughs> and try to kill him. <laughs> And one of them, but two of them, are because he tries to introduce people prostrating themselves, mm. which is common in Persia, where the emperor is a is a god emperor and is yeah. partly or kind of associated with the divine. But in Greece and in Macedonia and kind of further west, that is not considered to be an appropriate way. And so he tries to make his uh, his generals and his friends lie on the floor on his feet like face down on the floor flat 
Yeah. And they are basically not having any of it. <laughs> I feel like that's a harder thing to demand of someone when you are, as he was, like a warrior leader who fights among his men. Like he's not like ever separate from them. They are camping in, you know, where like c- consistently camping basically for years because they're yeah. constantly on campaign. So these are his like trench mates. These are men who have seen him, you know, take numerable shits, you have to imagine. And like, if that was ever going to be a question that was okay to ask someone, I feel like it's not okay in these circumstances. Yeah. They're like, you're what, mate? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> we send you uh, your worst. He does have a spectacular ego. Yes. And quite possibly he genuinely thought that this was an a, entirely appropriate way for them to deal with him because a big thing about Alexander is that he does seem to have come to believe or at least tell everybody that he was, in fact, a demigod. Yeah, he claims to be descended from Achilles. He claims, um, he, well, see, that's his family heritage. So the, the dynasty that he comes from claimed to be descended from Achilles. And everyone's kind of fine with that because, like, everybody's going around, like, yeah. fine, you're descended from Achilles. That's one thing. More importantly, he claims that his father was not Big Phil, but was, in fact, Zeusemon, the god Zeus, who is known as Amon in Egypt. And he takes this big old detour when he's in Egypt to go to see the oracle of Zeusamon, which mm-hmm. is a very, very famous oracle at the time. And he has a private meeting with the priests and he comes out telling everybody that the gods had told him that his father was not a human man, but in fact his mother, who he adores, who's called Olympias, was impregnated by Zeus. To be fair, Zeus did have... A habit of impregnating women. He did, but in myth. <laughs> it is a crucial distinction. There is a very crucial distinction, which is that you can go like, okay, okay, like I've heard the myths, I've heard the stories, da, 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 I've read them in a book. But then when there is a guy who is like 25 standing in front of you going, yeah, my dad is Zeus, <laughs> it becomes more troublesome and people yeah. don't love it. <laughs> But it does become like a really important part of the myth of Alexander. And so when people start writing down stories about Alexander, which they do very quickly, because he does also have his personal historians. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the reason why we think that Alexander is so great, which is that he is very clever and very good at having official historians on campaign with him all the time who are writing down everything that he does. Yeah. Yeah. And making it and writing it in such fashion as to make sure that it all sounds as glorious as possible. Amusingly, one of the conspiracies that was led against him by his own household, which attempted to have him killed, was led by his official historian, <laughs> who is called Callisthenes, <laughs> who, he, who refused to prostrate himself. And they had also seen the year before what happens when Alexander gets cross when people are questioning his his ego. Because in 328, at a dinner party, Alexander got into an argument with his friend Cletos the Black, which is a good name. <laughs> it's a very good name. Because... Everybody was sitting around at dinner saying how amazing Alexander was and how he had conquered all of these places and how now he was the king of the world and the great king and the king of kings and the son of Zeus and whatever. And then Cletos, who once saved Alexander's life on the battlefield, said, well, we helped too. 
and like he couldn't have done it by himself. He needed all his good generals and his, you know, his trained up staff and da 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 around him. And Alex was like, uh, "What the fuck? <laughs> I did it by myself, mate." And he's like, "Clytus is like, I don't. I mean, again, did save your life, and I do feel like you probably couldn't if you didn't have people you could trust. Just share the love a little bit, anyway." It escalates, um, and Alex stabs Klytos. Oh, fuck. I can't believe you've done this. Not great. To death. <laughs> In front of everybody at dinner, ruining the atmosphere for everybody and making it clear <laughs> that you just don't argue with Alexander. <laughs> yeah. And so a year later, when he started getting into the prostrating thing, they were like... I, this is going to go badly, so I think we should probably have him killed. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out, and Cletus gets stoned to death, which is better, actually, than the previous guy. Maybe it's not better. You can decide. <laughs> so so Clisthenes is stoned to death for his treason. Previous conspiracy a couple of years before that had been led by two of his senior officers, particularly Parmenion, largely because his ego was getting out of control, mm-hmm. and they were killed by... What is basically like a pre-gun version of firing squad. Oh, good. He's lined up and then a bunch of people threw javelins at them. I mean, I guess if you're going to die by javelin, it's better to die by a lot of them because you're more likely yeah. to die quickly. I think so. Yeah. But it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he has a lot of this, these, this idea that he is special and divine kicks in very very quickly like the second that he is in egypt and then it becomes a really significant part of his kind of mythology the mythology that grows up around him which is able to grow up because he dies of a fever in his bed at 32 still undefeated still undefeated having founded something like 25 cities all of which are called alexandria mm-hmm. all over the place five of them are in afghanistan alone <laughs> <laughs> like they're just everywhere you look there is an alexandria or something that used to be in alexandria that is now kind of similar having destroyed the persian empire or kind of taken the persian empire under his own wing and got much further east than anyone ever had before (laughs) and therefore had kind of bested the Persians. Unfortunately, he was much, much, much more interested in defeating people than he was in kind of... Ruling them and... Bureaucracy, yeah. Taking (laughs) taking care of the running an empire admin that can be so pesky. It is pesky and boring, which is probably why he didn't do so much of it. Although another thing that you will sometimes read about him is this idea of universal humanity... Because something that he does largely out of pragmatism is he will take bureaucrats from places that he conquers into, like after burning their cities to the ground and then refounding them and naming them Alexandria 23. <laughs> he's then like, right, do you want a job? <laughs> and they're like, well, you're the only one employing right now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. And so you sometimes get people who will argue that Alexander is brilliant, that he is some kind of has some kind of plan to create a kind of universal um, empire where everybody is equal. And he does things like send, he collects up loads of youths from Persia and sends them to Macedonia to be trained and then brings them back. So, but which is just basic. If he did something brilliant there, it was just recognizing that someone had to run something and he wasn't particularly interested in doing it himself because he'd much rather just be 
conquering people. Yeah. Also, I assume that he thought, like, I see him very much in the, because I see everything through a Roman lens, but also Alexander exists through a Roman lens, but he seems very similar to Augustus in the way that he's just fundamentally unafraid of anything. Yeah. And presumably he thought when he was in his 30s that he would have another 30 years to consolidate and control. Yeah. He didn't expect to drop dead when he was still in his very early 30s, when he was still pretty young, without having an heir, without having anything. Like, he presumably had this planned ahead that he would do this stuff, but he didn't. And so, unfortunately, the, his empire falls into four separate successor empires, mm-hmm. which, what that means, the four separate successor empires are Egypt, Asia Minor, Persia, and Macedonia. And there are big successor wars for a long time afterwards because everybody wants, all of his generals want to be the guy that rules all of it, but they never do. And it kind of comes into these four, these four Which is the sort of thing that always buffs up the mythology around a figure like Alexander the Great, because the fact that no one, once he died, there was no one that could do what he was doing. No one could hold this empire together. No one could lead the army as cohesively as he had led them. So that therefore he must have been extraordinary. He must have been special because it once he was dead there were only ordinary men left yeah doing ordinary things fighting each other rather than fighting barbarian enemies mm. and but the other impact of that is is it leaves four big territories which kind of claim alexander as their as their major founder almost mm. like the one that everybody knows is obviously in egypt and the ptolemies but it leaves alexander's successors in charge of big swathes of like the eastern mediterranean basically yeah which means that alexander leaves his culture all over turkey and syria and egypt and big old asia minor armenia and all of that and that is really the main reason why he ends up being alexander the great which is because some people, this is a quote, but basically some people just have a bigger impact on the world than everybody else. Uh, Alexander, <laughs> largely violently, because he is a violent genocidal maniac <laughs> who slashes and burns and murders and slashes and burns and murders in order to buff his own name. What that does is it leaves a massive, massive <laughs> impact on everybody. Yeah. One man all by himself, like you can't say, oh, the, you know, the Persian Empire, because that is a long thing that grows over time. There's the odd person. But, you know, and other empires grow slowly. <laughs> yeah. But he explodes. He's like a nuclear bomb going off, like, and it explodes and takes out a huge amount of the world and then leaves his radiation all over it forever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And regardless of whether that is good or not, it it's is very impressive. Very, very impressive. <laughs> and the kind of secondary reason, my favorite kind of reason why Alexander gets remembered as Alexander the Great is because the Romans, in particular, thought that that was the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. And there are two big types of sources about Alexander that we have left. One is a huge a collection of sources called the Alexander Romance, which are kind of myths and legends and romantic tales told about Alexander, which start before he died <laughs> and then spread all across the world. And there are like 
Syriac versions of them and Mongolian versions of them and Arabic versions and Greek versions and Latin versions and then it trickles into medieval France and like <laughs> these are all these stories that you might know with things like the Amazons, Alexander meeting yeah. the Amazons and the Amazons bowing to him because they recognise him as the only man who is worthy of their uh, <laughs> worthy of their <laughs> submission. Mm-hmm. And the sea drawing back when he gets to the sea, the sea prostrates itself and pulls back because even the sea recognises that Alexander is divine. And those trickle into the other type of story, which is Roman sources about Alexander, which are drawing from older sources, but which are all written in the Roman imperial era and which all think that Alexander is so amazing because they see, through the Roman lens, military success is something that only comes when the gods are smiling on you. Um, mm. And proof that gods love you is, and that you are special is that you are good in battle. And the only reason for you to be bad in battle is if the gods don't like you. <laughs> yeah, so if you've been defeated in battle, it's because you deserve to be defeated in battle because you displeased yeah. the gods. Essentially, there's no crime in conquering someone, right? Because you are just acting out the will of the gods. Yeah, and like imperialism and this idea of like crushing other people militarily and then exerting power over them is like their entire reason for being. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is the best thing in the world. It is an unqualified good to be able to conquer someone and an unqualified horror to be conquered. And so they think that alexander is just the best thing since sliced bread like (laughs) and so all of the sources that we have which describe alexander's life are roman era there is diodorus siculus who's writing is the earliest one he's writing 60 bce so he's still 250 years after Mm -hmm. alexander died then there is plutarch's life of alexander which begins with Philip not having sex with Olympias because some serpents warn him off and then having a series <laughs> of dreams about how Olympias's womb is sealed and comes to the conclusion that he can't sleep with her because she has already lain with a god. Yeah, so that's how we know that he's divine. Yeah, In Plutarch, it is written that Alexander is divine. <laughs> <laughs> And he thinks he's brilliant. And the other one is the kind of the famous one is Arian's history of the wars of Alexander, which starts with him ascending to the throne and then just describes in relentless and near pornographic detail (laughs) Alexander conquering his way across everyone. Yeah, and he loves him also. He thinks he's amazing. He adores him. He is full Stan heart eyes. He has this whole thing where he talks about how sad it is that no one has written about Alexander enough. Here it is. Okay. (laughs) This is a quote from Arian. The story goes that Alexander called Achilles fortunate to have Homer as the herald of his lasting fame. And indeed, Alexander had good reason to envy Achilles' fortune in this respect. For all his other successes, this one field was left vacant and his achievements were not published to the world as they deserved, either in prose or in any verse composition. There were not even any choral odes written for Alexander as there were for Hieron, Galon and Theron and a host of others who bear no comparison to him. The result is that Alexander's achievements are far less well-known than even the most trivial of other deeds in the past. 
Which right. is just flat out incorrect, Arian. It is flat out incorrect, as he then demonstrates by quoting a lot from other sources. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and both both Arian and Plutarch are pretty good at saying and XYZ says this and I disagree and and listing all of the other people who wrote about Alexander. So we know that lots of people writing about him and lots of people were saying contradictory things, but that Arian and Plutarch are both writing in 100 to 120 CE, so the period of Trajan and Hadrian, who are invading the East, basically. Trajan's Mm -hmm. big thing is that he invades Mesopotamia and then Dacia, which is up into, like, Hungary. Supporting documents for invasion, basically. This is why it's great to invade the East, because Alexander the Great did it and he was the tits. And also is a, you know, it's when... The, the image of, of Alexander comes back into the popular consciousness, much in the same way that like Boudicca comes back into the popular consciousness when we have a queen, so mm-hmm. when Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth I. So Alexander comes back as a, a model that's interesting to write about <laughs> because there is someone that you can pin it on with Trajan. But they are all Roman sources and they are all very much seeing Alexander through a Roman lens and as a result they are completely uncritical of him and portray him as literally a god who is amazing and you get all these stories like the Gordian knot do you know the story mm-hmm. of the Gordian knot oh yeah it's the the classic puzzle that the person who solved it I can't remember what the prophecy was meant to be they were great <laughs> and amazing and Alexander solved yeah. it by cutting it in half allegedly yeah so mm. the story is the Gordian knot is like such a fucking like where it comes from is such a dumb story it's like <laughs> the most Greek mythology of Greek mythology stories it's like Gordian or Gordius is a guy. <laughs> He's just a guy. And one day he's plowing his field and an eagle comes and sits on the knot between the yoke and his wagon. Mm-hmm. This is obviously a sign. So he goes and finds some prophets to talk to him about it. And they say, oh, like your son is going to be a great leader. So his son is King Midas. Right. And his son then does become a king, so he takes him off and becomes king. And then from this, the fact that Midas is a king, he keeps hold of the the knot tying the yoke to the wagon that had prophesied that he would become a king. And then somewhere along the line, it becomes this prophecy that there will whoever can loosen this knot, which notably was just tied by Gordias a guy <laughs> and then sat on by, an eagle. by an eagle like nobody any point seems to suggest that God tied it or anything but apparently he was real fucking good at knots <laughs> and whoever can loosen this knot will become the king of Asia right yes and Alexander goes and sees it and then Plutarch because he is quite good at this kind of thing gives us two versions and in one he just unties it so he loosens the knot and he kind of investigates it and very cleverly realises that there's a bit of wood in the middle and he pulls out the peg and unties it. And in the other, he can't untie it, so he just takes out his sword and slices it in half and says, there we go, it's loose now. <laughs> and um, and Plutarch's like, look, I can't tell you which one actually happened, but the important thing is that he came out and told everybody that he'd loosened it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can kind of take your pick as to whether he is like a clever man or who fulfills prophecy or a brute who just insisted that he fulfilled the prophecy and then you have the stories about Bucephalus or Bucephalus um his horse who his beloved horse whom he loves almost as much as he loves his Mm mum 
who he allegedly trains when he is a child so when he's 15 or 16 he this is a wild horse that no grown man had been able to tame and no one could ride it but then only alexander is able to tame the horse because he has the power of the divine yeah not just that the horse like just liked him for some reason you know yeah, or that just it was a horse. Like, it was a horse. Uh, <laughs> but all of these stories kind of grow up and are repeated over and over again. It's also worth noting, and I think this is actually quite important, that the first time that Alexander is called Alexander the Great is in Latin. So here's Alexander Magnus mm-hmm. and is by the comedy playwright Plautus. <laughs> I love it when things started as comedy. Yeah, and it is in a, I'm going to say mediocre on the basis that all of Plautus's plays are mediocre <laughs> and <laughs> let someone come for me if they want to. A mediocre, like, domestic play called the Mustelaria, mm-hmm. which is like a classic Roman translation of a crap Greek farce with, like, lots of people trying to trick one another and prostitutes and sure. kids trying to take advantage of their parents. It's written about 200 BCE, so about 150-ish years after Alexander died. And he calls, he refers to the great, like the deeds of Alexandrus Magnus. Mm-hmm. And that is the first time that he is called actually Alexander the Great rather than Alexander III, King of Kings or the Great King. Mm-hmm. And then that sticks. It's interesting to me that he's Alexander the Great and there's only one proper roman the great which is pompey the great pompeius magnus Mm -hmm. who is called the great because he conquers big old swathes of asia as well and but he literally he gets to be called pompeius magnus but when plutarch writes his life of alexander he parallels him to a roman so this is his whole thing is like he writes a biography and then gives you a Roman equivalent. Right, which is like the greatest compliment a Roman can give a non-Roman writer is to say that yeah. they... So like showing how history rhymes and how there are certain types of archetypal people who are just great all the way through. Yeah. But he doesn't choose Pompey the Great because Pompey the Great is defeated. He chooses Julius Caesar. Ah. Who, in fairness, is probably closer due to the genociding. Yeah, the megalomania. <laughs> But never gets to be a great. But yeah, so when we are actually able to read sources which describe him and all of the stories about him, they are, apart from the romances, which are clearly myths, like, mm. it's like reading Arthurian romances, like you yeah. don't really think that there was an Arthur looking for the Holy Grail, then they are Roman ideas of what good is, and good is conquering. Yeah. And... Alex can do something, it's conquer the shit out of people. Arian even goes so far as like he defends or deflects all of the bad stuff he does. So like when he talks, when Arian talks about Alexander raising Thebes, he just, he's like, probably it was all of the foreign mercenaries who slaughtered the people and not Alexander and his Macedonian soldiers. They were probably good guys. They were probably good lads. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Sure, Arian. And whenever there is something, there's the other thing that they all have to defend is that Alexander spares quite a lot of his time dressed up as a girl. Mm. Part of his, like, wildly unpopular thinking that he's a god is that he does dress up as a goddess quite often. (laughs) And so he spends a fair whack of time dressed up as Artemis 
and dressed up as Zeus, dressed up as Amon, kind of just prancing about. Yeah, a weird bisexual drag queen. Uh, (laughs) They're kind of like, yeah, I guess so. Maybe I don't know about the bisexual part, but um, he likes to wear a dress. He there's there's stories of him um, dallying with some boys. He had you know his great friend um, Hephaestion, (laughs) who was the Patroclus to his Achilles, and there were you know there are rumors that they were lovers, and there are other stories about him kissing the boys in his army sometimes but like it's hard yeah. obviously at this distance we've talked about this before you can't really you can't know a historical figure's actual sexuality no. obviously um, no but, but the the romans do have to grit their teeth a little bit and be like look yes but he was so manly that <laughs> yeah. it's okay he did so much killing and he was and it, this is also why we think he was greek because the romans basically portray him as a greek mm. <laughs> and are like yeah he was a good greek really So that, in brief, is why everybody thinks that Alexander the Great is the Great, because he was unbelievably good at fighting battles. Like, you really can't take that away from him. Yeah, and, like, it does seem to to be, like, genuinely creative and clever tactical moves. Again, like, obviously, Arian loved him so hard that you have to read everything with a grain of salt, but he tells the story about when the Macedonian soldiers were... Awaiting a battle, essentially, and the opposing forces were uphill from them and just charging down the hill. So Alexander said, okay, if you can get out of the way, get out of the way. But if you are on rocky ground, (laughs) then just duck down into a hole with your shield above you and then all of the chariots will go (laughs) across the top of you and it'll be fine. And so that happens and it's fine and then suddenly the Macedonians have the upper ground and they slaughter the opposing forces real quick. Real quick. And if that's like, yeah, I mean, that seems like some quick thinking. If that's the sort of thing he was good at, then you can't really fault him. Exactly. He was great at a battle. Yeah. And he does leave this unbelievable impact on the world. Mm. There are not that many Persian sources which mention him, disappointingly, largely because he beat the shit out of them. (laughs) And he didn't really have time to write about it while they were on fire. Yeah. But when, like, in Persia and parts of Afghanistan, like Persia being Iran now and the surrounding area, he is <laughs> he is remembered it as Iskana the Cursed. <laughs> <laughs> and he is, like, in myth and kind of legendary stories in, in Persian, he is a kind of boogeyman that people threaten their children with. I once had a Persian student tell me this, which was great. That's excellent. Like, there are still parents who will be like, go to bed or Alexander the Great will get you. (laughs) Or Iskander the Accursed. (laughs) I feel like he'd be happy about that. I think he'd absolutely love that. Um, Because that is basically immortality, right? (laughs) Yeah. You want to be revered by some, feared by others. Yeah. Yeah. And then because he is able to leave behind his own sources and because he has this amazing impact and then because the Romans love conquering and Roman sources survive really well, we have access, like the the only way that you could read about him is to also be reading about how he had a magically good smell and how... <laughs> He was, like, if he got lost in a desert, then a snake would come and talk to him and tell him how to get out. And no matter how much you try to strip out, like, logically, like, how good could he really smell? (laughs) (laughs) That it doesn't matter how much you try to strip that out, like, the impression that you're still left with is that he was a great, great man. 
Yeah. And no one in the ancient world is interested at all in critiquing the idea that maybe blasting into other places and burning them to the ground and then naming every city after yourself is morally challenging. I mean, impractical, if nothing else. <laughs> it's weird that he didn't come up with any other names. Yeah, he had other people. He, he could have named more after his mother, could have named them after his wife. No, no. just himself. He does name one after Bicephalus when the horse dies. Mm. He founds a city and names it after the horse. <laughs> that is telling. If you're Roxanne, you're like, come on. Normal, yeah. <laughs> I feel like given that he had a good couple of mass weddings and also two wives, I feel like he wasn't that interested in, like he didn't really feel that. He yeah. does come from a, a situation whereby, like, his dad has multiple wives and he has multiple wives. It's not like yeah. marrying is not something that you do for love. But that brings us sort of ish in a roundabout way to the second question, which is Becca's question, which is kind of like, why is it harder to critique those older forms of imperialism? And partly it is because of the source material that survives which 100% comes from like the written source material 100% comes from the, the conqueror yeah yeah we do not have the either lived experience or kind of any experience or anybody telling us anything really about what it was like to be a conquered person yeah and everything gets sanitized over time eventually like it's it's very easy to forget the the personal impact of something that happened 2000 years ago like it just doesn't seem it's it's hard to just in your in your one human brain comprehend the existence of people 2000 years ago and so yeah. that the suffering that they went through is that much harder to to comprehend than for example the suffering of people in Palestinian people now or Ukrainian people now like that's immediate it's happening now yeah. and you can see it you can see photos of it, but it's, it's yeah, time makes things clean and it easy, does. digestible. You know, and even when we do have stories of war, slavery and massacres and things, it is, it's hard to personalise that. Mm. But the second reason is that for a very long time, the people who were writing secondary sources also thought that imperialism and colonialism was very, very good. Yeah. And 100% thought that, imposing your will and imposing your power on other peoples was civilizing and brilliant um, and considered what the Romans and Greeks and Persians and everybody else was doing to be a plus plus behavior that should be not only praised but also emulated as often as possible <laughs> yeah and used the Roman Empire particularly to justify and to explain and to as a model for the British Empire as a civilizing force for the world. And so a huge amount of what is then written about the framework for looking at conquering and at what Romans and Greeks and Macedonians and whatever are doing is to see success in battle and success in conquering and success in besieging people and not to worry too hard about anybody who's at the other end yeah i mean you're also living in a time when it's like an assumption that if you're not the one conquering you're going to be conquered because everyone's at it <laughs> so yeah. this yeah alexander didn't romp into 
a peaceful Persia, he romped into a, <laughs> an expanding Persian empire. Yeah. And it is not, that doesn't make it defensible. It's a different conversation than, for yeah. example, the British empire discovering new worlds and colonizing them. Yes. And that is the third reason, which is that there is to a certain extent, a difference between the European projects of colonising the New Worlds, which was had technologies that the ancient empires did not have, largely mm. the technology to move massive populations and also had a, a mindset that was different, which was a mindset of claiming land that they thought wasn't populated by people. Yeah. When Alexander is going into Persia or the Romans are going into Mesopotamia or Gaul or whatever, they're fully aware that they're fighting people and they are fully aware they just want their stuff <laughs> and they want to conquer those people. Yeah. And they know that if they lose, then they will be conquered and they will be enslaved. Yeah. And if they win, then they will do the same to the opposing. Yeah. And the process by which they are imagining themselves as being at war with people in order to control territory and control land and control resources. But mm. they are at war with people. When you look at how Europeans viewed the Americas, viewed Australasia, viewed Africa, they did not consider themselves to be fighting people. They consider themselves to be arriving in uninhabited land. And when you read... Like, for example, I'm a massive fan of Sven Lindqvist, who wrote very short but unbelievably good books about European colonialism, and I highly recommend them. Mm -hmm. So he wrote one about Australia, for example, called Terra Nullis, which is extensively about how when British people arrived in Australia, they literally did not see the Aboriginal peoples as people. They saw them as fauna. Yeah. And as far as they were concerned, the Aboriginal peoples were animals to be eradicated and moved out of the way they did yeah. not see them as being at war with a people and this very much the same thing that the portuguese and spanish in in the americas and everybody in yeah. africa did not consider themselves to be at war with people they considered themselves to be taking land that rightfully belonged to them from people that from what they considered to be not people yeah and that led to the like the development of racism and racial science and all the rest of it. But there is a difference, therefore, in how European colonizers dealt with the lands that they arrived in. Yeah. And that is what makes them objectively worse. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that there's an, an extent to which our like modern, as in right now, conceptions of empire, just in how they've changed over the last even like 30 or 50 years, has yeah. to do with development of communications technology i've thought about yeah. this a lot in terms of new zealand's attitude towards maori people and how we've not there yet you know there's a lot more work to be done but it does feel like new zealand is further ahead i think mm. than other colonized nations where the dominant population is still white which is not true of all colonized nations in the pacific for example but i think one of the reasons that I think we're doing a little bit better than, say, Australia and the US. I mean, the US never seem to talk about Native Americans at all, which, which no. really baffles me, to be honest. I guess they're busy with racism against African-American people and they can't, can't deal with both at once. I don't know. That's flippant and glib. But I think one of the reasons <laughs> New Zealand feels like it's a bit further ahead, not anywhere near the end yet, 
is because we're so small a country that it's harder to ignore the voices of marginalized people. Mm. Like if there are 10 people in the room and one person says something, you hear it. If there are a thousand people in the world room and a hundred people say something, you might not. And I yeah. think that the increased accessibility of, of mass communication essentially has really swiftly changed perceptions of empire as a concept and I think yeah. it's easy to dismiss how quickly that has changed. Like my grandparents' generation still viewed England as as a homeland. My yeah. generation doesn't at all. My parents' generation doesn't at all. But that's really recent, you know. So yeah, it's it is it is very recent, and it is very much a a product of the late twentieth and early twentieth century. This idea of of questioning imperialism yeah. and colonialism as questioning the morality of it or as a as a mainstream as a mainstream thing and there are still people you know who unquestioned who don't think about it or who will defend it and you'll still you know every so often somebody will do i say somebody i mean a right-wing newspaper will do a survey and it'll be like 54 percent of people think that actually the british empire was good because it brought trains to india and you're like Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and it you know i work in a bookshop and you see only maybe in the past two years you've started to get a significant number of of popular books which are doing the kind of thing that academics have been doing for a certain amount of time for like maybe 20 years but like genuinely questioning or bringing to the fore the experiences of colonized people and the experiences of of people like native americans for example like just this year there was a kind of a book written about called the native it's called on savage shores by carolyn pennock and about the native american discovery of europe basically like Mm. what they thought about europe and what they thought about because native americans came to europe as well and met europeans and what they thought about them Um, and this is very it's a very recent thing to question it um, and for that to be a mainstream a thing and so we are really at the beginning of of talking about colonialism as as even a concept that isn't just yeah. something that British Empire says. Um, it's, it's only just stopped being a radical thought that yeah. Europe shouldn't have colonised the world. But also the way that Europe colonised the world was profoundly different to the way yeah. that the Romans and Alexander colonised the world and and really do read Sven Lindqvist. Exterminate all the brutes about Africa and Terra Nullis about Australia. They're both very short and they're both extremely, extremely good. Yeah. They will make you deeply, deeply depressed, but <laughs> <laughs> but they're worth it. I'm already pretty deeply depressed about my place in the world as a white person from a colonised nation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least my family didn't even leave, right? <laughs> I was talking about this today, actually, because both my sides of my family have done, like, family trees, and it is staggering how English I am. And it's, like, <laughs> the furthest that anyone goes is, like, from Kent to Sussex and back again. Like it's beautiful. No, no one even goes like further north than like South London. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is genuinely astonishing. And I was saying to my friend this and she was like, Well, at least you never colonized anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mel, you're right. I never did. I <laughs> can't get an Irish passport, but I <laughs> never colonised anyone. I, yeah, yeah. So, so on that delightful note, 
that's Alexander the Great. Yeah. Empire building. Yep. Don't do it, kids. Don't build an don't empire. Don't do it. Unless, I guess, you're going to do it and then die so you don't have to handle the consequences. <laughs> Unless you're going to be Alexander. He was, to be fair, great at it. Yeah. Next time, we are answering a question that we've got a couple of times. So this is from Katja and from SK Kesson, who have asked, what is the history of matriarchal societies? Which is a great question. Katja specifically says worship of ceramic tits and such. So... (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. We love the worship of ceramic tits. There will be a slight break before that one because I am going to Iceland for my birthday. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Um, but I will maybe come back with some good Iceland stories. So Yeah. Worth it. Yeah. But so, yeah, it'll be about three weeks probably until the next one. But until then, if you have a question or you want to get in touch with us or you want to, I don't know, say hi, be buy nice. Buy a T-shirt. Buy a T-shirt. Yeah, follow us on the Twitter machine or somewhere else. Then all of that is at historyasexy.com. Yep, easy. Yeah, and show notes will be there as well. So if you want to know what I read, and I will put some links to Arian and Plutarch so you can also read their... Love fists. Frantic wanking over Alexandra. (laughs) (laughs) I've been drinking a cider while doing this, does it show? (laughs) Bye, Janina. Bye.